that there was a need for this understanding, this education, this knowledge about what is it that we need to do to support female athletes and females in terms of their health and their fitness and their training and and um, what, like, what 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 do we need to do because there was really very little information out there. So that's why we set up the Well HQ. If you are constantly worried about getting injured or you don't know how to get faster as a runner and you want to continue to run for stress relief, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Healthy Runner, the only place that provides you with training tips, injury recovery, and prevention tools with actionable strategies by experts in the running industry so you can develop a stronger running body and feel confident that you can overcome any obstacle as a runner. I'm your host, Dr. Dwayne Scotty, avid runner, running physical therapist and coach, educator, founder of Spark Healthy Runner, where we help dedicated runners get stronger, run faster, and enjoy lifelong injury-free running with the perfect online running coach, even if you've been told to stop running with an injury or you think coaching is just for fast runners. Learn more about our signature coaching program at learn.sparkhealthyrunner.com. Every week, we help a runner just like you learn how to consistently get in your mental clearing miles and even hit PRs well into your 40s, 50s, and beyond. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or follow the show on Spotify so you don't miss the next episode. Thanks for joining me. Now on to the show. Hey, healthy runners, are you ready for your glow up? Have you guys heard the news yet? Knox Gear signature product, the Tracer, which I have been glowing about, see what I did there, for the better part of nine months now has just been re-engineered for a better fit, higher visibility, more color modes, and twice the LEDs for your brightest move yet with the Tracer 2. All of our healthy runners use Knox Gear during this time of the year when the days are getting shorter in order to get in those runs even if it is dark outside. One of my pet peeves is when I'm driving and I don't see a runner until the last minute because they're not visible because they're not using Knox gear. We're all about runner health on this podcast and Knox gear's Tracer 2 is an essential running tool to keep you safe and visible while running. The Tracer 2 keeps me lit up from all directions during my 5.30 a.m. runs, and I always get shout-outs and comments from other walkers and people traveling in cars because they notice the light display I'm giving off. If you are looking for running gear that will actually help you stay safe while running, we've got a special offer for you where you can save 35% off by using the code HEALTHYRUNNER. Just head to noxgear.com. That's N-O-X-G-E-A-R.com and use the code HEALTHYRUNNER at checkout to save 35% off. Go ahead and give Knox Gear a try. Trust me, you will never feel safer running. Running isn't a battle of the sexes and there are some unique differences between female and male runners. So if you are a mother runner out there who wants to tap into your strength and manage the unique challenges you may face as a female runner, then this is the episode for you. Welcome to episode 156 on the Healthy Runner podcast, where we help you get stronger, run faster, and enjoy lifelong injury-free running 
happy last podcast episode of 2022. And we are finishing with a true expert who is passionate about supporting women and girls to discover the best in themselves and fulfill their potential. Today's guest is Dr. M. Dr. Emma Ross, who until recently was the head of physiology at the English Institute of Sport, uh, supporting practitioners working across Olympic and Paralympic sports and leading the EIS female athlete program. This program aimed to empower coaches, athletes, and sport practitioners to better understand the exercising female how to capitalize and cope with her physiology and psychology in the context of sport. Dr. Emmer recently co-founded the Well HQ to continue this mission to tackle the taboos, educate and empower people in sport and beyond about topics such as periods and the menstrual cycle, breast health, pelvic floor health, and what it takes for girls and women to thrive in sport, in health, and in life through education and um, consulting into schools, sports federations, and businesses, the Well HQ is redesigning sport for women, whether they want to enjoy participating or train to perform at the highest level. Dr. Emma, thank you so much for being willing to share your expertise and come on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, guys, this is going to be an exciting episode where Dr. Emma is really going to educate us all about the differences between women and men and what you need to know to either help your own running or to support your spouse, your daughters, or your moms, right? We're going to talk about the training adaptations, recovery, injury risk, menstrual cycles, menopause, and how we can support our adolescent girls starting out in sport. So Dr. Emma, on the show, we always start with a little dynamic warm-up like we would before our runs. Um, so can you share um, with our listeners you know, where you call home and give us a little bit more backstory on how you've gotten to this point in your career journey? Okay, so uh, I feel very fortunate to live in a, in a, it's kind of the countryside of the south of England, um, and we are nestled between the South Downs, which are those kind of chalky white cliffs that you see on those, um, you know, postcards from England. We live between the, the, the South Downs, which has amazing trail running, and the Ashdown Forest, which is where A.A. Milne and Winnie the Pooh live. So um, we are surrounded <laughs> by some amazing countryside, um, and I guess that's uh, where I like to go and um, kind of decompress, uh, and so feel very fortunate to, yeah, to live, to live here. And I'm only about three miles from where I grew up, so it's also nice to be surrounded by communities that that I've known for a long time. Very nice. And, you know, how, how did you, and I guess from, you know, what I've been gathering and following some of your content, you've started out more as a researcher, is that correct? Yeah. So my journey started, I mean, I, I followed, I stayed at university for way too long. I, I did a, a sports science degree and then I did a master's in sports science and then I did a PhD studying exercise physiology so kind of honing um in on physiology specifically um and after that I stayed and I was an academic so I taught and I researched at, at universities um for about 10 years and at the time I was um kind of really interested in human performance and the limits of human performance and how um, our bodies change when they were trying to perform in extreme environments. So very hot environments, very cold, um, high altitude, so low oxygen. 
and and that's that's kind of what my work comprised of and then um um just after the 2012 olympics which was here in london um and sort of British sport was on a high uh, and I was asked to go and head up the sports science team at the English Institute of Sport, which was an amazing opportunity because they are the science and medicine arm of the Olympic and Paralympic system. So here I was entering the Olympic and Paralympic world when it was on kind of an all time high and also a brilliant challenge because, you know, walking into that environment, the question is, how do we stay here? How do we stay and how do we be the first country who, you know, uh, beats their medal tally in the games after their home games, which no one had done before. Um, and we were able to do that in Rio. And I worked um, in the Olympic and Paralympic system for um, two Olympiads. You know, we lived our life by Olympiads. So I worked um, to build up and prepare for the Rio games and then towards the Tokyo games, which was meant to be in 2020 and happened slightly later than we anticipated. Um, and as part of that role, I was helping all of the sports in our in our high performance system think about how to optimize performance and I was working with sports scientists particularly the physiology team who were looking at you know pushing the boundaries um, of sports science getting the basics right but then also thinking about what's you know what's new what's cutting edge in terms of supporting not just performance but the health and well-being of athletes so they can perform really well And then after the Rio Games, we um, were having the usual kind of debrief, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, what do we need to concentrate for uh, Tokyo? And from a physiology perspective, there was definitely an environmental factor. Tokyo was a hugely hot, humid Olympics. So their sort of heat load was um, the greatest it was ever have going to be. So as a physiologist, we all got excited because we got to think about how to prepare athletes to compete in the heat and particularly those type of endurance sports that, you know, that was a really exciting challenge. But the other question we asked, and, and I was specifically in charge of, of really sort of um, pushing forward this uh, theme of work was, do we support our female athletes well enough? Um, and when we looked at the, the medal data from Rio, we saw that our female athletes were actually bringing home less percentage of the medal haul than other countries. So like in the States, your female athletes do brilliantly. They bring home half the medals, sometimes even 55% of your medals. In uh, Team GB at the time, in the Olympic squad, we were getting 35% of our medals from female athletes. So that started a conversation, which, uh, and a question really, why did that happen? Which was very hard to answer because you can imagine that the the reasons why that happens are rooted right down into grassroots sport, right through the whole pyramid of performance. And so whilst we didn't ever really have an ambition to answer the question, what it allowed us to do was just ask us what I think was a better question was, do we support our female athletes well enough? And I, for the first six months of that project, I just went out and asked that question to coaches and to the athletes themselves and to the nutritionists and strength and conditioning coaches and I kind of just said, do you feel like you support your female athletes really well? And the first the first answer is always yes. You know, we're a world class system. We are, you know, we are at the, at the cutting edge of, of science and coaching. And of course, we do brilliantly. And then I sort of started to say, oh, so that's great. Um, you know, what is it that you do that's specific to her being female that kind of makes your support of her really optimal? And everyone was slightly less <laughs> forthcoming with, the, you know, like, oh, uh, and I, you know, do you consider the menstrual cycle or um, do you have we focused on design of sport, uh, breast support as much as we have focused on the design of, um, you know, the, the race suits? And everyone was very quiet then because they actually 
you know, they hadn't considered it. And almost worse still, we weren't talking about it. And so um, we then were able to develop a strategy, which was first, we have to raise the awareness, then we have to educate and say, you know, these are the things that we should be thinking about when we're supporting women in sport and female athletes and their health, their well-being and their performance. And then we were at the same time doing some innovation work and research work around sort of pushing the boundaries. But really, the aim was to improve the whole system in terms of just just accepting that that we needed to do something differently. Um, so I did that for for about six years, that project, and it and it went slower than I hoped. You know, we would go in and, and talk to sports about this this stuff, and um, there was no action. There was an energy in the room and really good intention, like, oh, this is very interesting. Yeah, we haven't really thought about this. And then everyone would go off and just do the same thing. So it it took a while to start sort of changing the course of this big ship, if you like. Um, but as I was doing this work, I I knew that the elite athletes were actually very privileged. They already had nutritionists and physios and strength and conditioning coaches to help them. And just layers outside of that, right down to girls, you know, who were dropping out of sport at twice the rate of boys. We have, you know, sort of a bit of a crisis, inactivity crisis in this country, certainly with girls, um, that there was a need for this understanding, this education, this knowledge about what is it that we need to do to support female athletes and females in terms of their health and their fitness and their training and and um what like what 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 do we need to do because there was really very little information out there so that's why we set up the well hq um which is really designed to sort of change that to change the amount of information and credible resources that we have to help us support girls and women better in sport yeah thank you for sharing i i'm just fascinated at you know hearing about some of this journey that you've been on and i think you know many can relate who have been trying to make change in certain areas, um, you know, and topics could range, right? When you're in big institutions, unfortunately, sometimes those things happen very slowly and frustrating. And it sounds like, you know, you've really taken initiative, um, which um, with the Well HQ to provide this education, which I think is so important. And that's why I'm really excited to have you on the show today, because we do need to do better. And even from myself being a male, right? I know I need to do better. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about like how I can be a better coach for my female athletes, um, a better father for my daughters. I have two teenage uh, daughters and, you know, I have a wife that I support who is a runner and an athlete herself. So um, I'm really excited um, to hear and learn a little bit more how we can provide that support. Um, now, you yourself as a athlete, like, have you run in the past or have you ever been a runner? What's, what's your running background? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was a games player right through university and left university. I was actually a rugby player in university and I was at a university where, where the rugby team were very successful and we won, you know, the university, um, league and it was amazing. And I, and I, we played at Twickenham, which for in England is like the hallowed turf of rugby. And it was incredible. And then I kind of finished university and I thought I'm either going to have to, you know, take a step up and, and continue to try and compete at this level in rugby, which were at that time was a rapidly changing game in, in the women's game. And women were getting bigger and stronger and faster and it was getting more painful. Or I thought, or I could just hang up my boots now and say that I did it really well and not have to <laughs> take that journey into what I felt like would be a painful, a painful place. So I um, hung up my boots and then I just kind of um, fell into running through a, a charity 
Uh, I got a charity place in the London Marathon and I started and I just kind of, you know, classic fell fell in love with with running and I found actually running and long distance running really kind of was was something that I love to do as much for the mental challenge as as a physical challenge so I started running marathons then I moved to ultra endurance and I did things like the south um the south downs way run which was 100 kilometers along the south downs near us um really a great on um, trail running um and and then I got into uh, triathlon, and then I got into Ironman triathlon, and I did a I did the uh, New Zealand Ironman um, uh, when I was thirty, and so that was really the pinnacle. <laughs> like I kind of reached that pinnacle. I did a few more marathons, um, the Beachy Head Marathon again, a brilliant trail marathon, and just loved it. And was okay, you know. I was never I was never winning, but I was always I was you know did I really was pleased with how I was able to progress personally and then I had children and you know the classic um I didn't have time or the inclination to run for a while uh, I lost my mojo a bit I had to redefine my relationship with running um I was always running towards something in the past you know I was running towards a goal and the goal was was big and it was a marathon or it was an Ironman and my training was always pushing me to get fitter and better all the time and when kids came along and I had to balance children and my changing body and uh, work and um, I, I kind of couldn't figure out how to do it for a while because I couldn't figure out that if I could only do a 20 minute run, that was that was like that was OK, because I'd be like, well, that's nothing, you know, and I just had to reframe. And it took, you know, I, I it took a long time for me to enjoy running again because I felt like I was failing myself all the time by not pushing for those big goals. But actually, you know, it, it took a few years, but uh, I love running now for the pure joy of running. And um, whether I can go out for 10 minutes or an hour um, and whether I walk it or I run walk it, um, I adore it. And, you know, it's my space. It's my brain space. It's my mindfulness. It's uh, all of those things, as well as my sort of um, for my physical health. So um, my relationship with running has shifted over time, but it's still, a, you know, really important part of my life if I can stay in one piece. <laughs> um, well, thank you for sharing that because I know there are many, many, um, you know, the majority of our listeners are, you know, women and, you know, there's going to be a lot of our listeners who resonate with your story. And, you know, a lot of the athletes in our coaching program come from an athletic background, you know, like yourself. And then, yes, you go through these changes, right? Especially, as you become a mom and after children. And that's why it, I think, you know, you're such in a great position to speak, not only from the science side of things, right. And what we're going to get into, but also you've, you've lived it, right. You've had that personal experience as an athlete. You've had that personal experience as a female with a changing body. And, you know, you're in this place now where you are able to enjoy the many benefits that running offers um, from an exercise perspective and yeah, about staying healthy. You know, we have a bunch of episodes on how you can do that. So you're going to have to check out some of yeah, those. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's get into today's uh, topic, if that's okay with you. When it does come to running, you know, where are men and women different? I have some really good discussions about sex differences in terms of sport, because on one hand, it's really important. And on the other hand, it really doesn't matter because in sport, we tend to compete either with ourselves or with, you know, in, in groups that are defined by our sex. So actually it doesn't matter that, 
that men are different, but but actually fundamentally, it kind of re- is really important to understand because, and the the reason it's really important to understand why we're different is because so much of the research and what we know about health, performance, training, adaptation is based on research in the male body, um, and and the way sport has been designed, whether that's um, kit, equipment, you know, shoes and boots, all of those things again have been designed with the on research mostly done on the male body. So we did we published a paper a couple of years ago which looked at sport and exercise science uh, research that's published in the top five journals looking at um, sports performance. And um, only 6% of it was done exclusively on female groups. Um, so um, a large proportion of it was done own, exclusively on the male body. And some was done on mixed groups, but they didn't take into account sex differences um so we are very poorly served in terms of of anyone's understanding of what's going on in a woman's body when they're trying to train for health or fitness or performance so actually understanding the difference is kind of important because it allows us to say where are the assumptions okay to make in terms of what we know about how to train you know this sort of default male and where are the assumptions pretty flawed um which I have to say is in most places, you know, we, we probably need to do better investigation, revisit, you know, our investigation of the human body and check that what the principles that hold true for the male body actually hold true for the female body. Um, so fundamentally, we, we all know the obvious differences, you know, as you look at as a female, we, are, we tend to be smaller and lighter. So about 10 to 15 percent shorter in height on average uh, and lighter. We have um, often have shorter limb length. We have shorter foot length. Um, In terms of running and being kind of like an endurance runner, we have a smaller heart. We have a smaller lung capacity by about 25%. We have a smaller cardiac output. We have less hemoglobin in our blood, which means that we carry less oxygen, which means that if you think about all those things combined, we have a lower VO2 max or aerobic capacity than men. So on average, our VO2 max as a woman will be lower than that of, of a man. However, what's quite cool is within within that, um, we know, for example, that when you're running a marathon, your ability to run efficiently is quite an important determinant of performance. You know, like how much energy you use at any given running pace is really important. And we know that elite women, you know, well-trained women could run a marathon distance at about 80% of their VO2 max and they can they can achieve that intensity so if if a woman finds a, a guy who has the same VO2 max as, as them, which is totally plausible um, because there's quite a big overlap in the natural distribution of aerobic capacity between men and women. If you find a guy who's got the same VO2 max, you can totally race him like and uh, across something like a marathon or, a, you know, like a slightly longer distance race and expect to be able to fully compete, which is is quite cool. But um, in terms of, you know, the shorter distances of running as it gets shorter and the determinants of performance are more based on strength or power or speed. That's where obviously the female body is, is just it has less capacity. Um, and, and that kind of is rooted in off. So that's kind of to do with obviously we have different anatomy, we have different biomechanics um, and we have different shapes and sizes and then we have different physiology and then layer that on in terms of our evolutionary responsibility in, in the human species, which for women is to reproduce. Um, we then layer in that physiology, which is about having a menstrual cycle and having um, sex hormones, which influence 
from our brain to our bones to our cardiovascular system to our immune function you know, these hormones are widely influential and so we have a ton of these two female sex hormones and a little bit of the male what we might call the male hormone testosterone and men have you know a ton of testosterone and very little estrogen and and so that difference in hormonal physiology creates huge differences and I guess when it comes to sport well, human beings are, are hardwired to survive, right? So um, everything we do, and particularly our hormonal reactions, you know, like when we have the fight or flight response, we have adrenaline and cortisol and things change in our bodies to help us either run very fast or like be confident enough to go and fight whatever's, whatever the threat is. Um, so we are hardwired for survival and our physiology really helps us with that. And with females, we're hardwired to uh, A, survive and B, reproduce. And sometimes those things cannot exist um, like in a symbiotic relationship. So, for example, if we wanted to compete with men in sport and we wanted to become as fit as we could be as women, um, we would probably compromise our ability to reproduce. And we can talk about that in a minute when we talk about, you know, um, some of the very female specific factors to do with um, the menstrual cycle and, and health. But um our, our female body is kind of designed to make sure that we can survive. And if we got pregnant, we can survive. And if if we can't do that, then the first thing that goes is our ability to reproduce. So it's really interesting to think of kind of like not just how we're built and not just how our insides are working, but how our, our sort of roles in this in this human race um, influence how our bodies work and how that might then have an impact on how our bodies respond to different trainings, to different nutrition, to different energy states. Um, so it's kind of a, like it's it's big, right? It's a big area. Right. Um, we're fundamentally different, um, but there are some real cool nuances to do with female physiology that we can get stuck into. Yeah, and thank you for highlighting some of those, you know, differences um, in terms of anatomy, hormones, biomechanics, like you said. So is success you know, in running defined by some of these, you know, differences or your biological sex? I think depending on what we mean by success. So if success in, if success in sport is, you know, in running is faster, then yes, you know, you uh, men will on average be faster than women. Um, the longer the distance gets, as we know, the, the sort of almost the, the closer the gap gets. And we know that there are ultra distance races where women have won outright. Um, but if you took the best, the, the most fit man and the most fit woman in any domain, whether you're talking like short, you know, distance, the, the man would, would come out on top. Um, but whether that's success or not is, is, you know, kind of, I guess, um, arbitrary, because like I say, some, you know, women are often competing against women uh, or they're competing against themselves. Um, and success might be staying injury free and, you know, De developing and adapting and progressing and if that's the case then no that's not defined by our biological sex it's totally influenced by it and there are different influences to staying healthy injury free illness free and being able to progress and develop and and you know pb uh, as and when you need to um and if that's success then it's not defined by biological sex but it is influenced by it yeah no that's a great segue because i do want to learn a little bit more about the, you know, specifics to like running and training and, you know, what are some of those differences um, with respect to female and male runners um, when it comes to like recovery, training, um, you know, any adaptations that we need for training or injury risk? 
Yeah. So I, I think one of the topics we talk a lot about when we're, we're educating is the menstrual cycle. So it's really the defining rhythm of a, of a female's body. Um, and that in itself throws up influences on all of the things that you've just described, training, adaptation, motivation to train, um, recovery, injury, um, mood, uh, illness. So so in that respect, even understanding that is is a huge step forward if we're trying to think about um, what the differences might be. So to give you some examples, across our menstrual cycle, estrogen, there's two hormones, estrogen and progesterone that there are other hormones, but these those are kind of the two main players. And estrogen in the first half of the cycle kind of goes from very low to its peak. And that is the like the influential hormone is estrogen. And estrogen is an amazing hormone. It um, is an anabolic hormone. So much like testosterone, it can kind of help with muscle repair, uh, growth and adaptation. Estrogen has a knock on effect to growth hormone. So it creates this very kind of anabolic environment in our body, which is really helpful when you're training and trying to adapt. And so there has been some research about recovery when your estrogen levels are, are higher and that your recovery is more robust. And what that means is that it might be quicker. You might have less muscle soreness or the muscle soreness might diminish more quickly. Um, and you might have less biochemical markers of, of fatigue and damage. So in that way, you know, suddenly we've got um, a, a hormonal environment, which on in some times of our cycle is kind of more on our side when it comes to recovering and adapting. And I guess when we think about the menstrual cycle, it's not about saying, oh, well, that's a shame because if I'm going to do stuff over here where my hormones don't do that, then that's bad luck. It's not about that. It's saying if we understand our cycle and know when to kind of, you know, pull and push some of these levers as athletes, particularly as individual athletes, where we are slightly more in control of what we're doing, how we're training, when we're recovering, when we're doing the high intensity sessions and the fartleks and when we're doing the low intensity steady state stuff. If we have you know, flexibility around that, trying to tune that into how you feel across your cycle and how your physiology is kind of helping is on your side. So we know in the second half of the cycle, when progesterone arrives on the scene and um, is one of the influential hormones, that we are kind of better able to use fat as a fuel. And so therefore, those longer, longer endurance runs, for example, might feel better, you might um, perform better, um, because of just how your metabolism is working. Um, we know, for example, that uh, estrogen influences the collagen in our joints. And so some of the physiotherapy lit literature shows that our joints become slightly looser um, when our estrogen is high. Now, some people have related that to injury, and we don't actually have very robust evidence to say, you know, like if, if you're in this phase of your cycle, you're going to get an ACL injury. But what we have got, you know, some evidence and particularly feedback from athletes is that there are times of the cycle when you might have tighter hamstrings, when you might have the back niggle that flares up. And it's understanding that is cyclical. And then either, you know, if you're working with a physio, getting them to help with strategies around that time or, or just knowing that the underlying cause isn't musculoskeletal injury, it's a slight looseness in your pelvis that in time is going to correct. So what can we do around now to sort of navigate through? Um, so there are some cool things. I say cool because I think knowing is just so empowering. And it's not about saying, oh, gosh, isn't it annoying when I have premenstrual symptoms that make me feel like I don't, I'm not motivated to train, which we know lots of women do. There was a 
was a great study of 14,000 uses of Strava, female uses of Strava. And um, they answered lots of questions around their menstrual cycle. And 88% of them said they had cycle symptoms which impacted their ability to train, Um, whether it was the quality of training, whether it was enjoyment of training, whether it was even showing up to training. And again, that's important for us to understand, but it shouldn't be seen as kind of like a weakness. It should be seen as an opportunity to say, are we going to put up with debilitating period pain or um, bloating or um, lethargy? Or are we going to say, if this happens every month, then it impacts my ability to do my sport or enjoy my running. Shall like, shall we try and do something about it? So, uh, Dwayne, I can't actually remember what your question was, but there was so much uh, gold there that you shared. And just um, coming from the physio perspective, I can, you know, share throughout my career how many you know, females that I've seen, like the common kind of injury I'll put in kind of air quotes here is like sacroiliac joint pain. So SI joint pain. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, you know, those patients over time who have, you know, it is in that cycle, right? It is yeah. kind of once a month, they start having that pain on one side in their lower back area. And a lot of times patients who have instability, inherent ligament dyslaxity already, and then you have this mm-hmm. you know, spike in hormones, they could get some malalignment of their SI joint or get some SI joint pain. And you kind of, you know, you go to a physio, you go to a chiropractor and you get kind of corrected, right? They put it back in place. But the key for those folks who, you know, constantly get those symptoms is stability and stabilization, right? And like, you know, learning how to actually activate the muscles around the pelvic floor. I know you guys have some great content in pelvic floor, um, you know, stabilization and motor control um, is so I, I definitely related kind of yeah. back to my physio treating days um, when you were yeah. talking about that, because that's yeah. something, you know, we as physios commonly see in the clinic. But and it's really I, interesting when, sorry, to, to, no, just no. on that point, because I think it's really interesting when we were working in, with the elite athletes and people were sort of like, oh, you know, should we, you know, at different times of the cycle, should we, be, should we be concerned about doing speed and agility or plyometrics? You know, should we be sort of, I would say, protecting the athletes? And actually the physio's um, perspective was if we make really resilient athletes and if we work on that stability, mobility, um, then layering on peaks of hormones is going to be okay um and actually we can't you know let's let's not sort of get over anxious about these few days let's create an athlete who for all time uh, is able to cope with whether it's a spike in hormones or whether it's an unexpected change in direction or or you know uh uneven ground and let's create that and and i think that's as as a really good philosophy And, and as females i don't know whether this is something you're really familiar with but we tend to be really um kind of poor biomechanically sometimes and there are so many reasons why that is um we there is a gender play gap from so from the you know from five we are playing differently as girls and boys and that can influence um how well we learn to move in lots of different ways and so being kind of stable and mobile being robust enough to be able to cope with you know uneven ground or our body in a weird position like that that comes from wrestling with your friends or like you know climbing up trees and trying to not fall out and often boys and it sounds cliche but the research reflects that that's what happens and the girls are you know they might be singing and they might be um like doing some dancing but they're not really doing this like really um chaotic movement which helps us develop resilience and then there's some other research which shows that we as females 
preferentially activate our quadriceps. So we over rely on them and then we get weakness in our glutes and our hamstrings. And I'm sure that's something as a physio, you constantly work on with people. I know oh, that's yeah. something I have to <laughs> constantly work on. Uh, and then you mentioned pelvic floor and we see such a range of pelvic floor issues in females. So from, and particularly in athletes, um, hypertonic, so kind of overactive pelvic floor through to postnatal women trying to return to running who find they're leaking and they have weakness in their pelvic floor. And even understanding that there is a, there are, is a difference in, in the dysfunction that can happen in pelvic floor that where the symptoms can often be the same, whether that's leaking urine, whether that's um, recurrent urinary tract infections, an inability to empty our bowels, so constipation, like loads of different consequences of pelvic floor dysfunction. But it can range. And, and, in, and some of the athletes we work with, it's definitely that inability to relax the pelvic floor fully that is the problem. Whereas in some of the postnatal women or some of the perimenopausal women, it's either a weakness in the pelvic floor or in perimenopausal women, when our hormones are declining, it's actually a sort of atrophy of, of um, the vaginal walls. And with, so then that's not providing stability, sort of a um, structure, a scaffolding for the pelvic floor. So a range of things that can go wrong specifically in a female anatomy and actually we tend to just clump it together and say it's urinary stress incontinence it's probably a weak pelvic floor and we kind of just and then you've got all these women doing sort of doing their pelvic floor exercises probably doing them wrong um, right. not but actually some of them who are really fit and have a hypertonic pelvic floor are actually just strengthening something that's already kind of too uh, like not able to relax enough so it's fascinating isn't it like taking all of these parts of of things that are specifically influenced by either the female biomechanics, like how our, you know, hips are wider or, or our neuromuscular system, how we activate, um, or our physiology and how the hormones influence those things. When you, you suddenly build up a picture. So when you go back to my first question, which was, do we support our, our female athletes as well as we can? If you're not taking into account all of those things and using them in your problem solving, when let's say you're a physio or you're a coach, then the answer cannot be yes. It, you know, it has to be like, oh, no, we haven't really taken apart this jigsaw of what it means to be a female and put it back together and really considered all the important pieces. Most runners spend an enormous amount of time not running for one reason. They keep getting injured. Now, imagine if you could have the structure of exactly what exercises how much to run, and what you should be eating to get faster as a runner. Spark off your winter running with a four-month strong body transformation. This is one-on-one -on -one individualized healthy runner coaching to grow a stronger, injury-free body so you can run for stress relief all winter long. What will you get by the end of the 16 weeks? A strong running body so you can actually feel confident, healthy, and running faster this spring even if you don't think you're a fast runner. Oh, and did I mention, this will also take away your worry of getting injured. Spots are limited, so apply using the link in the show notes before they run away. From what I'm hearing is, you know, we need to think about what are the differences, but at the same time, not say that's going to limit our abilities, right? So how can women you know, really tap into their strength and manage like those unique challenges that they face. I know you mentioned, you know, thinking about, you know, what, you know, where am I in my cycle? And is that going to change 
some of my training and like putting on my coach's hat, I was thinking about like, yes, when I have a female athlete who does her first like really long run in marathon training, like a 16 miler or an 18 miler, and it just felt horrible. Like now I'm thinking about going back. It's like, hmm, you know, maybe if I had that conversation uh, with her, like at, you know, what point of the cycle, you know, is that why she felt really terrible or was it the weather? Was it because, you know, we didn't get good sleep during this week? Um, But so I, I think you've given me something to think about in terms of, you know, why women may feel the way they do uh, during that month. But, you know, how can women like tap into that strength and and manage some of these unique challenges? I love what you just said there, because you didn't kind of go to the place that some people go, which is, oh, my gosh, it must be the menstrual cycle. Like this is about um, giving you loads of tools for problem solving as a coach, for example, like you're always trying to work out why was that hard or why was that good? And the menstrual cycle has to be one of the factors and often gets forgotten. Um, but it's not it's not only going it's not going to be the only factor. And it might be a factor that's influencing something else. So, you know, sleep might be impacted by being in the perimenopause. And that's not just a case of saying get better sleep. Like we have to get to you know, kind of have to like look at the bigger picture here. Um, but I think when it comes to tapping into our strength, I think understanding our bodies is a hugely underutilized power for women because we have been sort of deprived of information um over here in the uk we we've had a big um surge in discussion around the menopause and i don't know whether that's coming across to to your side of the pond but um the reason that started happening was because we had a a celebrity who did this brilliant documentary about the menopause um, and about how it affects our bodies and what we can do about that and there was a whole generation of 14 50 year old women who for the first time in their life heard information from a celebrity now she did it brilliantly because she worked with a doctor and really good information but I was like how could we have got to a generation of midlife women and the first time we hear about our bodies and what's happening to them is from this person who was is on tv you know so we are very poorly educated right from you know day dot in terms of understanding our body so that's for me is how we tap into our strength and the way we tap into that strength is yes it's kind of absorbing information like this but it's also listening to our bodies and again in this in this society now we we spend far less time just taking a moment to listen to what our body is trying to tell us and the only time we listen to it is when it's screaming at us um and we are often much much more comfortable with kind of silencing it and trying to ignore it or just do more to try and drown it out than actually listening to it. So I think listening to our bodies is is a real superpower because one example of listening to our bodies is to track our menstrual cycle and to a understand what it looks and feels like for us, because every woman's cycle is different. And my experience of my cycle will be different from the next person's in terms of our sort of lived experience. Um, And lots of the research that's coming out now is not just about reporting what are the most common symptoms and, um, what's the average length of a cycle but it's like what is the psychological experience of our cycle and that appears to be the determining factor about how we behave so you know whether it's a motivation to move or to train whether it's um you know whether we want to be social or take risks or um be really productive in work or feel like we we want to you know be in a dark room with you know a book our behavior is is hugely influenced across our cycle and and that will be different for lots of people so understanding your experience of your cycle for me is a superpower because if you understand it you know what's going to happen across your cycle 
you can start to um, anticipate stuff. So you can anticipate those good weeks. You know, there are there are parts of our cycle where the hormones will just make us feel kind of invincible, you know, social, motivated, energized, we recover well, we perform well. And on those days, I can guarantee women aren't going, oh, like, this is my menstrual cycle. This is amazing. It's the days when we feel tearful and tired and bloated. And we go, our period's coming tomorrow. My menstrual cycle is so awful. But actually just really understanding our whole cycle and knowing that across time, we're going to be getting some brilliant stuff from it. And we're going to be getting some stuff that we don't like. And then we're at choice whether to do something about it. And again, there is no golden bullet here. There's no like, no one's invented the thing that goes, well, if you have premenstrual symptoms, here you go. But we do have more information now about, you know, nutrition and diet, um, lifestyle, sleep, stress management, exercise, right through to medical interventions that can help with those things. Um, So when you understand and listen to your body across your cycle, you are then at choice to be quite resilient to what it throws at you. um, And you can make the most of the good bits uh, and be like, I know that I feel great in that week. So yeah, why don't I plan some of those good sessions then? Or I know that I actually do prefer going steady and I and I just feel good doing that here. So where possible, let me do that then. And it's not about saying, well, actually, that no, that's annoying because my marathon is going to fall on that day. If you've been doing that for the months leading up to your marathon, you've been getting all of the the extra adaptation and extra motivation and um, confidence from training in that way, then it doesn't matter when your marathon you know, shows up um, in terms of your cycle because you put in all the work beforehand. So for me, listening to our body and understanding our body is, is, a, is a real strength. Second of all is making sure that we are in the right kit for our female body and making sure we haven't just kind of settled on something. So the two big things for me, well, the first big thing is breast support. And um, we've done some brilliant projects around breast support, but what's overwhelming for me is how little information again we get as girls when our breasts are developing and then as women we might get a fit we might sort of find roughly find our size and then just that's it for the rest of our lives and I know I know most women have sports bras in their drawer that they're like yeah they don't fit they were really expensive though so I'm not going to throw them away I'm going to keep them but I can't wear them because they don't fit well why don't they fit because I thought they fit and then I moved and they and they didn't feel great and we don't get that right very often but we need to. The bra is such an important part of kits. There's a great research group I work with um, down on the South Coast called the University of Portsmouth Breast Research Group. And they study breast biomechanics. And they, so they study how the breasts move, particularly during running, because it's quite a high impact sport. And they've collected lots of data. And they show that when our breasts are moving, so when they're poorly supported, so you're either wearing a, a really rubbish bra, you're not wearing a sports bra, but you're wearing like a bralette or a everyday bra. When your breasts are moving, um, it causes so many different changes in your biomechanics, um, even in the energetics. So you activate more muscles to counteract the breast movement. So you use more energy. Your upper body tilts forward to counteract the breast movement. So you become less economical in your movement. Your stride length shortens, so you cover less distance. And all of those things mean that if you start a marathon in a brilliant bra, which is high support and well-fitting, and you're lined up next to a clone of yourself who is wearing poor breast support, um, you will finish a mile ahead of her just because you had good breast support. So we're talking, you know, important, important factors when it comes to running and performance. But also we know that lots of women suffer breast pain. Uh, Lots of women have bras that rub and cause them blisters around the rib cage. And these are all not okay. And a good 
a good sports bra is going to really fix that. So listen to your body, get the right kit, um, be as well informed about your life stages as you can be. I think, again, we go through some inevitable, some by choice life stages, whether that's starting our periods and our bodies changing shape or going through pregnancy and postnatal or going through the menopause. And actually stuff is happening to our physiology that's going to affect our ability to run, our motivation to run. Um, and it doesn't have to hold us back, but we do have to be aware of it. So cycling back to the first bit, if we understand our body and we know what's normal for us, we can start to see when things change and we can start to then go and advocate for our own our own help and support. Um, so those are my three three things. Uh, listen to your body, get the right kit, particularly the right sports bra, and really understand your body as it transitions through life stages. Oh, that's great. And I'm just fascinated with, you know, like, you're educating me. This is amazing because I've never thought about breast support. I knew it was important. I knew that it's a problem in a lot of women and who struggle with finding the right sports bra for running. But I never looked at it from the lens of like, my physio running form gait analysis lens of like, hey, like I'm analyzing my athletes' gait patterns all the time. And when their elbows are slightly out and they're running like, you know, chicken wings, I'm having them bring them in because it's going to be more efficient for them running. And I never thought of thinking about breast support as being like, hey, this is going to be a hindrance where you're going to actually expend more energy because you're not supported, right, while you're running. And so thank you for like, bringing that <laughs> light bulb moment um, in my brain. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense from like a biomechanical energy conservation standpoint that you will be more efficient as a runner um, if you are supported. So all, all great, great uh, information here. And, you know, you mentioned menopause and if you can, because we do have like literally the majority of folks listening to this, as I mentioned, are going to be female and the majority are going to be in their 40s and 50s. And, you know, and, that, and they come here because um, a lot of them do wind up getting injured at that time. And whether it is, you know, training errors, getting back into running after taking a long time off. Um, but what are the unique, like, challenges of menopause as it relates to running? And I've, you know, learned some of the content on your page about, like, perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause. Can you just, I know it's such a, you could probably go in depth for like an hour on this topic, but you know, what can you share with our listeners that is going to be helpful for them in kind of a, a shorter bit amount of time, if you can do that? Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, you know, it's challenged me. Um, so um, in our forties, our menstrual cycle goes from being fairly predictable and fairly kind of rhythmic to starting to actually be a little bit chaotic. And so the first thing that happens when we enter perimenopause is that we have big spikes of hormones and then big drops of hormones. And that's, you know, if you think about the menstrual cycle causing some good stuff and some bad stuff, that's almost amplified in the perimenopause. Um, and we can really feel the effects of that. And that's when we start experiencing symptoms. But often, because we're in midlife and we're busy women who are trying to fit in, you know, running and family and caregiving and work, we we often overlook some of those symptoms. So knowing, kind of knowing that, that those might be related to perimenopause is kind of important. And as we move through our 40s into our early 50s, we have sort of on in the background of those fluctuating hormones, we have declining absolute levels. And because basically when we get to the perimenopause, sorry, the menopause, our estrogen, our progesterone stop being produced. Um, and so there, there are so all sorts of and changes. This is a silly question. 
uh, so then the cycle stops. The cycle stops. Yeah. Here. Okay. All right. So Thank what you. happens? The cycle. For all the men yes, out there. <laughs> yes. The cycle in the first place kind of gets shorter and then gets kind of irregular. And then menopause is actually defined as a year after your last period. So you have to kind of go a year without having a cycle and a period to then say, I am menopausal. And that's when your body will not be producing its own estrogen or progesterone. Um, and so it's some people call it um, kind of your own hormone deficiency because we need those hormones to be healthier. And they are related to some of the changes we see for runners. So estrogen is really important for building and maintaining bone strength. And, you know, notoriously, we um, we lose that as we lose our estrogen and we have osteoporosis in a, in a higher prevalence of women as we lose that estrogen. Um, estrogen is really important for muscle health and muscle mass. And so um, that starts to decline because our body is not helping us keep it. And so we have to do so almost extra work to, to, to keep our body as we've said, robust, really resilient and stable. So some of the things that really need to happen in midlife, which we probably have ignored in our younger years, is um, weight training and conditioning. So as runners, we're probably notoriously bad and think weight training is a waste of time. If I could be running, why am I not running? Um, but actually, if we are going to be losing muscle mass and bone strength, one of the best things to do for that is to build in some strength and conditioning. So like we we need to try and find a way that we can, you know, build into our and we love like if, if it's if it's a challenge for us, we're not going to do it. So, But we need to build it in. And we notoriously don't do that well enough. We need to start warming up more. Again, gone are the days where we could probably just go out for 10K and like, you know, hit our race pace within the first couple of minutes and be fine. You know, we need to warm up more. Um, and that's like that's OK. But like knowing that and knowing that we need to do um a little bit more work ahead of actually your main training session. Um, we need to make sure we are uh, looking at our nutrition. Weight gain and weight changes and body composition changes are really common in perimenopause and menopause. Um, actually, as your estrogen declines, we become slightly more male-like in terms of our physiology, and we start to deposit fat in a similar way to males. So if you think about females, we, we deposit fat around our hips and our bottom, mm. Um, and that's how we get our kind of more female shape. As we lose our estrogen, we start to deposit fat in our tummy, um, which is a more ma male way to deposit fat. So lots of women uh, find they change shape. They might change body composition. And it's a, it's actually, a, unfortunately, a natural part of this changing hormonal environment. So thinking about, you know, including weight training will it help will help because it increases, you know, it's, it's an extra load, energetic load for your body to cope with. So that's good for weight management. Um, but also thinking about your hydration and your nutrition and making sure that's, you know, as good as it can be. Um, making sure you're eating consciously. So lots of midlife women eating on the go, grabbing and going and actually eating consciously can really help. Um, protein is super important as we age. And so making sure we're getting protein and if we're following a vegan or vegetarian diet, making sure that we are being really vigilant about that because we it's not as easy to get our needs from those diets. Um, and addressing symptoms, it would be my final um, tip there, is that don't put up with them because there are things that you can do and there are resources you can you know access. But there's also healthcare practitioners who specialize in the menopause who can help. And it's not it's not a weakness to say I'm going through the perimenopause or menopause, because if you get the help, it can be life changing for women. You know, we've, we've met women who 
have stopped training, have left work, have left relationships, but they've suddenly accepted that actually this is normal and I need to get some help and they've got some help and life has changed around. So um, it's a really um, challenging time sometimes for women who have been absolutely accomplished and been able to do anything they want to do without even questioning, whether that's racing, whether that's working. And now is the time when you might have to be slightly more, you know, um, there's some challenges to, to being able to do what you want to do. But there's also a mindset shift, which is like <laughs> um, you kind of lose the the need to kind of please people, impress people. And you just, you know, step into your own power and understand your own body uh, and make sure it's working for you. Yeah, self-care, right? And, and yes. tap into that and and be aware. And I love how you shared the, you know, benefits of definitely weight training, strength training for runners, uh, warming up because, uh, many folks who've been listening to this podcast have heard it through kind of an injury prevention lens and performance lens, but, you know, hearing it from you coming from the, you know, middle-aged female lens and why it is even more important for you if you are, you know, a mother runner in your forties or fifties, um, hopefully if those haven't implemented yet, we'll actually take action and implement because it can help them, um, from, you know, a biological standpoint of what their bodies are going through during this period. And from what I've been gathering, it sounds like most females don't realize they're in perimenopause. Like how long does that usually range? Like how many months or years? It can rain, it can last up to 10 years. So it's, that's wow. not good news for people who are in it. But um, and that's, you know, that's an extreme. So, um, you know, women might experience, experience one year of symptoms. They might experience up to 10 years. Um, 30% of women will experience some symptoms, but they will be completely manageable. 30% of women will actually probably kind of sail through and not really, you know, notice too many changes. And 30% of women will be flawed. So there's this kind of distribute, natural distribution of our experience of the perimenopause. And unfortunately, it's really hard to predict. There is no kind of like, you are type A, so you're going to have this. Yeah, thank you for sharing some of those signs and symptoms, just in case someone was going through some of that. Um, all right. So last topic that I would love to talk about, as I mentioned, I'm a father of two teenage daughters who are athletes, and um, they do kind of high-performance volleyball and, you know, how can we as, you know, most of the people listening to this again are probably going to be parents. Um, how can we as like parents or coaches or educators, right? If you're a teacher, um, how can we support our adolescent female athletes um, and runners a little bit better? So we do a lot of work with um, teenage girls in, um, and particularly sporty teenage girls. And um, one of the things we try and do is get them to open up about their bodies because their bodies are changing you know they go through huge changes during puberty uh, and it's a it's a hugely vulnerable time they start their periods they change body shape they develop breasts their brains are changing emotionally they're changing socially things are changing and um creating spaces where the girls can ask questions about that is so important and in sport we have tended to look at puberty particularly in sports you know like gymnastics and um dance where changing bodies are sometimes challenging so we've tended to not want to open up the conversation about puberty or periods or, or bodies and actually that's so important because the girls all have so many important questions that we need to help them with and we need to accept that their bodies are changing um 
and they might change shape. They might, they'll obviously be growing. Um, and sometimes in girls, that can mean their performance plateaus. Um, in boys, they, you know, the arrival of testosterone means they get sort of bigger and stronger. And for girls, the arrival of their hormones means they start to redistribute their fat, you know, again, around their hips and their bottom. They develop breast tissue. Um, as they grow, they might become slightly less coordinated. And actually, that can have an impact on something like running times for a small moment. And it's about almost nurturing them through that time, because I've worked with we've worked with a lot of young triathletes and they say, you know, I used to be winning and and now everyone's beating me. And it's like just saying, just hang on in there. Let's just work together. Let's stay consistent. Let's stay positive. Um, because actually they come out the other side, you know, half a season later, they're back, you know, they're back. They're the, they're the front of the pack. Um, but in that time, their body was changing. It ju- They just had to, you know, hold fire. And people panic in that, in that time. Coaches panic. Um, athletes panic. And they say, maybe I'm not made for running anymore. And actually, it's about being patient and nurturing, which is really hard in sport, particularly with young kids, because you're like, they want to do it. We want them to do it. Um, We also need to make sure that that the value we put on what their body looks like um, doesn't cause significant damage to them. And what I mean is, you know, I've, I've had loads of girls who will say to me, my gymnastics coach said, I can see your breakfast. Or my running coach said to me, lighter is faster lighter is faster. And then they said, let's get on the scales. And all of those mantras and those values um, and those words instill in girls the idea that they have to be as lean as they can be to be good at their sport. Now, there's no, you know, I'm not denying the fact that leanness and lightness is, is important in some sports, but not at the expense of health. So we see so many girls who are under eating. And when they're training a lot, what happens is, um, you know, I said at the very beginning that their ability, you know, our reproductive ability is the first thing that will be compromised in a female body. So when we don't fuel our training effectively, whether we're a teenage girl or, you know, you know, middle aged woman, we we create this energy deficit. It's called relative energy deficiency in sport. And the consequences of that aren't just that our body says, well, you know what, to save energy, I'm going to shut down my reproductive cycle, because, you know, I can still survive without a reproductive cycle, and I will save energy. And so then, you know, girls will either stop having periods, they won't start their periods, they'll start having very irregular periods. But it goes much deeper than that, because those hormones of the cycle are so important for growth and development, for brain health, for breast health, for cardiovascular health, for immune function, that we now know so much about what happens when girls and women under fuel, under eat and their training. Um, and it affects um, uh, psychological mental health. So 70% increased risk of depression, uh, affects bone health, increased risk of injury, immune function, increased risk of illness. It puts a ceiling on aerobic performance. It stops muscle adaptation. So suddenly, you know, like if, and, and when they're young, this is when we can either plant the seeds of, of uh, empowerment and what a healthy body looks and feels like, or we can plant the seeds of lack of body confidence and, you know, this spiral of dysfunctional relationships with food. So for me, this is a key time to, to talk about how bodies work, not how bodies look. And, you know, if an athlete has to be unhealthy to be light, then that's not the right sport or the right weight or the right um, weight category for them. Uh, and for me, there's like a no compromise. And and um, we've seen um, ne- whole nations take a really strong approach on energy and energy deficit in sport. Um, and 
someone like Canada or New Zealand basically have said, you know, our female athlete work is making sure every athlete fuels effectively because we know the consequences in our female athletes of not doing that. And, you know, they're, they're, they're teaching their girls to eat properly, to be heavier, to eat more and still perform brilliantly. So, and for me, this this teenage time is is really critical. So it's about accepting and supporting their changing body, encouraging them to talk about it and ask questions, and also being really careful about how we frame what bodies look like. Oh, yes. And coming from someone who has worked a lot in the gymnastics world in the beginning of my career, um, yeah, I just love everything that you had to say because there's still cultural things that need to change. Um, and I've seen the impact of so many young girls and, you know, that it's had on them. And, you know, we try as parents, right, to support our girls and really educate. And um, I just love everything that you had to say there. And hopefully, you know, I think we're making steps in the right direction, whether or not, you know, we're making steps in all places. I don't know if we are, but thank you for sharing that. That was extremely helpful. And yes, um, relative energy deficiency is huge and within our runners as well. And we have a whole episode on that topic that we've covered on on the show and properly fueling. Um, so getting into our final stretch, the last question we asked all our guests here, if you can change one thing about the misconception about being a female runner, what would that be? I think what I'd love to change about being female in sport in terms of misconception is that there is fragility or weakness around the female body. I, I think the fragility is in the system that's been designed not to allow us to be educated or talk about or address some of some of the things that show up for us as women. Um, and by keeping us in the dark, we haven't learned enough about, you know, our amazing body and and what it can do. And And for me, it's all about opportunity. It's about framing these things not as fragility or weakness but as oh my gosh there's an opportunity to work with my body as a female that I didn't know before how amazing how amazing there's an opportunity to understand this life stage better so that I'm not flawed by it and I can actually continue to enjoy my sport so for me the misconception is that there are things about the female body that are annoying or weak or fragile and actually it's the system that is you know compromised and is fragile and if we create a system which empowers all women girls through to women, you know, well into their menopause about their bodies, about what's happening, about how to get the best out of them, then everyone's going to feel like sport is a place that they belong. So for me, that's, that's my wish. Yeah, knowledge is power, right? And yeah. once you know, you know, you can apply that knowledge and be able to work with your body. Um, yeah, so I'm sure there are so many runners who really resonated with your message, and I can guarantee it pretty much. Um, you know, how can our Healthy Runner community connect with you? So we have um, a website, thewellhq.com. Um, on there, there is um, resources across all the topics, um, menstrual cycle, breast health, menopause, and we add topics all the time um, with, with new information. We have courses online if you're a physio or a, a practitioner or a coach and you want to learn more in a sort of CPD way, we've got online courses. And finally, we have a book coming out in May 2023, um, which is like, well, you know, we essential in terms of um, understanding your body better as an active woman. So we're really excited and we'll, we'll let you know, Dwayne, and you can tell everyone um, when that's available in, in the spring next year. Yeah, please do. Uh, please do. There'll definitely be many that would want to grab that book. So definitely let me know. I'll 
you know, share it uh, within our communities. And, you know, guys who are listening to this, like I said, knowledge is power. And I'm sure you learned some things today. I learned some things today that I wasn't even expecting to learn today. Right. And, you know, the best way that we can help um, our female athletes is really sharing this. So wherever you're listening to this on the podcast or on the Spark Healthy Runner YouTube channel, you know, just click that little button, like copy link and just like send it to a friend um, who may need this, send it to a parent, send it to a coach, um, anyone who could just learn a little bit more, um, because the more that we know, then the more change we can make right in society as a whole and really support, um, our female runners, whether you are postmenopausal, uh, perimenopausal, or you're a young runner, um, who's just starting out. So, Thank you so much, Dr. Emma. This has been like very, very educational. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy day and sharing your expertise on the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. And as always, runners, let's maintain a strong mind, a strong body, and let's just keep on running. Until next time. Hey, healthy runners. My name is Trisha Monticello Keevlin. I live outside Houston, Texas, and Coach Whitney asked me to record a little video to talk about my experience so far in the Healthy Runner program. I came to running in sort of an interesting way. I have done a little tiny bit of running in the past, but I've never really considered myself a runner. Um, I have always really considered myself a cyclist. Um, in fact, I am on the board of my community's uh, bicycle coalition and do a lot of uh, work with bicycle and pedestrian advocacy. Um, but like I was the kid in gym class who like I would get super red in the face when I would run around and like I feel like I was teased for that some and just sort of generally was like, you know what, this running fast, running at all, not for me, too much bouncing, too much up and down. Um, and most recently I came to running uh, because my bike was in the shop and I had some, I have a cargo bike that I use for hauling my three-year-old around with me if I go to the store or go to the park. And my bike was in the shop and I have one of those fancy new e-bikes that I got. And it was the time of year here in Houston that the weather is just perfect. And it was killing me going like, I just want to be outside exercising, but I don't have my bike. What am I going to do? Because the weather's so nice for the three months of the year that it's not summer here. And I remembered the way that the person, the guy who sold me my e-bike described like the utility of having an e-bike. He talked about like having an e-bike takes all the excuses out of why you wouldn't go for a ride. Like it makes things a little easier, makes things uh, just a little more accessible. And I realized that I was at the point where I was really running out of excuses for why I didn't know how to run or see myself as a runner. Um, one of my very dear friends, Jessica Allen, uh, is also a participant in this program. And she went and ran like 10 miles while she was seven months pregnant. And like, I have friends who are in their 50s and friends who are in their 30s, like people who've had injuries and have come past it people who've had other big major health scares and they continue to be committed to running and it's just a part of their lifestyle um and so like looking at jessica running while pregnant looking at me wanting to be outside but didn't have a bike i was like i'm out of excuses i'm never going to be the fastest person but i just want this to be a part of my life like i just want to know how to run without getting injured and to make this one of the things that i can choose to do to have an active lifestyle um and to be able to do with my daughter um like i like being the kind of per i want to be the kind of parent i'm i have a three-year-old so i'm pretty early in this lifestyle of parenting but like i want to be the kind of parent who models 
uh, that kind of active lifestyle for my child. It's really something that I love about where I live is we have more than 200 miles of paved pathways. And like, I want to be able to share that with her and share that with my community. Um, so I've been so inspired by being part of this program. Um, it's been great being matched with a coach like Whitney, who is also a mom, um, and just like getting such great insights and encouragement about the most basic things like you know, what do I do with my hands like what, how, like silly basic things like how do I hold my hands how do I hold my body and just like accessories like getting advice about what kind of shoes do I need um I think there were lots of practical things that seemed really intimidating and I've really felt so empowered and encouraged by the things that I've learned um in this program like I feel like this has been a wonderful space to be able to get inspired by other people's achievements and the things that um, they've committed to do for themselves that are making them feel strong and healthy. Um, I've been really encouraged by that and, and just feel very welcomed and that I can ask my silly questions about what my hands ought to look like or like how much my breathing should or should not match up with my, uh, the pace of my feet. Um, I, have been so grateful to be part of this. I've really appreciated the accountability um, of being able to talk to somebody and also have somebody else make choices for me. I think I love group fitness classes and that's mostly because I like somebody else being in charge of the decision making on my fitness for that day. Like I've really enjoyed being able to look at Final Surge and like I don't have to make a choice, I have to make the time to get the jogging stroller set up or get like make the time to do the strength workout but I don't have to choose what I'm going to do like that has been written down for me and uh, helpfully curated and picked for me so in general I'm having a fabulous time I it really goes along with uh, the podcast last week with uh, Whitney talking about like how you identify as a runner like I never thought I would identify as a runner but now I really do like I'm a cyclist I'm a runner um, I feel more like an athlete than I ever have before. And I'm really enjoying looking forward to different workouts and, and realizing that what running can be for me might not be what it is for other people, but it's still really encouraging for me to feel like I'm getting a little bit faster, to feel like things are getting a little easier, I can go a little farther. Um, I'm really getting excited about those small, meaningful milestones that I'm recognizing uh, in myself and in my running as it becomes por more part of my life and more part of my practice. And, and that's really what I wanted. Like I wanted this to be like a life skill that I could have. Um, so I'm super grateful for this community. Thank you, Dwayne. And thank you to all the coaches. I'm really, really enjoying being part of this. Thank you as always for listening to the Healthy Runner podcast where we help you get stronger, run faster, and enjoy lifelong injury-free running. If you found this content valuable, here's five ways we can help you grow as a runner for free. One, grab a free copy of my Spark Blueprint at learn.sparkhealthyrunner.com. Two, follow my Instagram page at sparkhealthyrunner. Three, join my free group by searching Healthy Runner on Facebook. Four, subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash spark healthy runner. Five, leave us a five-star review so we can gain access to more experts in the running field and bring those lessons back to you here. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on Apple podcast or the follow button on Spotify so you don't miss the next episode of Healthy Runner so you can maintain a strong mind, a strong body, and just keep running. Lastly, if you've been struggling with the constant injury cycle, not eating the right foods for running, or not getting faster as a runner, and you are ready to invest in becoming a lifelong injury-free runner, 
head to sparkhealthyrunner.com to apply for a one-on-one signature coaching program. Thank you again. I mean it from the bottom of my heart that I appreciate you for listening and sharing this podcast with a running friend who can use the help. Now go and crush your run today. See you next week.